life in the antiquarian book trade. I should say good evening to you all as well. Um, I realize that the title of my talk is somewhat ambiguous, and any of you who are expecting steamy revelations of what really goes on after hours at book fairs or up on the third floor of H.P. Kras are advised to leave immediately. It won't be anything like that. The whole thing is going to be rather sedate. Though we might catch a brief glimpse of Princess Bebesto's chemise. Are you titillated? My first connection with the world of antiquarian books began when I was about eight or nine years old. I lived with my parents in a modest little house in what is now an eastern suburb of London called Wanstead. At the time of my childhood, however, much of the area was still undeveloped. There were wide grassy meadows on each side of the river roading, about 10 minutes walk from our house. There was Wanstead Park, once the site of Wanstead House, home of the Earls of Essex. And across the road from our home, was a large orchard and a spacious garden, in the middle of which had formerly stood a sizable house inhabited by my paternal grandfather. The house had been pulled down some years before, and the orchard and garden left to run wild, providing a marvelous place for a child to play. In those halcyon days, of course, parents didn't have to worry about muggers in the mulberry bushes or flashes behind the floribundas. However, there was still a resident on this estate, a rag and bone man by the name of Mr. Dench. He lived, together with his horse, in an old garden shed next to the stables. In the shed, there was a cot on one side for Mr. Dench and a pile of straw on the other for the horse. As a child, I did not think it at all odd that Mr. Dench shared his living quarters with the horse. <coughs> Obviously, it was nice and cozy in the winter, and if it got a bit hot and smelly in the warm weather, the horse could be tethered outside. Not that I believe smells ever worried Mr. Dench. Also, I was fond of animals and thought Mr. Dench was to be commended for being so kind to the horse. At the stables abutting the garden shed, little remained except the roof. But that afforded Mr. Dench an excellent place in which to sort out at leisure whatever he had picked up during his wanderings with the horse and cart around the neighborhood. There might be old clothes or furniture, china and glass, things of that sort. My mother had taught me to read at the age of four. I, not my mother, uh, before I went to school, and I had been a voracious reader since then. My family was hard put to it to keep up with my appetite, and I remember that whenever I, asked, I was asked what I wanted for Christmas or my birthday, I always answered a book and would obligingly compile a list of desired titles or subjects on the spot if so requested. Up until the day when I made my tremendous discovery in Mr. Dench's stable yard, I had occasionally visited him and the horse in their shed. We would exchange a few polite words and I would look enviously at the cart and the piles of junk and think how very fortunate he was to pass his days in such an occupation. On this particular morning, as I watched Mr. Dench unload his cart, I saw he was taking out piles of books. I edged closer for a look and saw handsome, fat books in leather bindings. I picked one off the pile and opening it to the title page, I read, 
Five books of the lives, heroic deeds, and sayings of Gargantua and his son Pantagruel, translated into English by Sir Thomas Urquhart and P.A. Mortier. The date of the edition I don't now remember. Seeing my interest, Mr. Dench made a magnanimous gesture. You want that, Ducky? he asked. I nodded. All right, take it home then. He was a cockney, you will understand. I subsequently discovered that Denchy, as he was known locally, couldn't read at all and never had any idea what books he had. Some years later, at the beginning of World War II, I would go and help him fill in, fill in forms for identity cards and ration books and cope with various bureaucratic intrusions, for print remained forever a mystery to him. I went home with my treasure, but must confess that I found it rather hard going, and there seemed to be a great many words I hadn't encountered before. Nevertheless, it was a book, and my devious little mind pondered that others might be acquired in the same way. So I took to hanging out regularly at Denchy's, and in this manner acquired a rather remarkable library for a collector whose age was still at the single digit stage. I remember sets of Dumas and Balzac and Zola, though I never read them, my French at that time being rudimentary in the extreme. But I would sit and turn the pages and look at the pictures and stroke the bindings, a little nascent bibliophile. I remember also Swift and Smollett and Fielding, Scott and Dickens, all of whom I essayed to read with varying success. There was also a lot of rather dismal cloth-bound Victorian editions of Tennyson, Coleridge, Arnold, etc. Of course, it wasn't long before my mother began to notice these new acquisitions in my bedroom and took exception to them, not on the grounds of the unsuitability of their texts for one of my tender years, but because they came from the rag and bone man and were consequently unsanitary. She herself read only newspapers, magazines, and an occasional romantic novel, and I doubt she had ever heard of Rabelais. She demanded of my father that he speak firmly on the subject to both me and Mr. Dench. But my father collected prints in the area of local topography and was therefore inclined to sympathize with a fellow collector. Actually, I think he had made a few very advantageous buys from the contents of Mr. Dench's cart wasn't about to cut off a promising source of supply. My mother sniffed and ostentatiously flourished the Lysol whenever I brought home a new addition to my library. My connections with the antiquarian book trade for the next 25 years consisted of an occasional purchase in a second-hand shop. And it wasn't until I answered an advertisement in the Daily Telegraph and was taken on as Bertram Rota's personal assistant that I discovered my true vocation. After one week there on Vigo Street, I realized that I had wasted an awful lot of time and would spend the rest of my life in a frantic effort to catch up. Still, better late than never. And the thing about the antiquarian book trade is that usually you spend every waking moment somehow connected when you're not being paid to work, you are either reading catalogs or cataloging your own books or listening to somebody talk about books. 
or looking at an exhibition of books. As Donald Wing is supposed to have said, imagine being paid to read antiquarian book catalogs. I really had no qualifications for the job at Rotas, except that I had read a lot of books and had a fairly good knowledge of French and Italian. However, Bertram said that mine was the only literate letter of application that he received. All the other applicants had merely sent resumes, and he always said that a resume never told you anything about a person that you really wanted or needed to know. I'm inclined to agree with him, actually. Um, I discovered that I had a natural bent for cataloging, and within a very short time, I could go through a pile of diaries or letters and pick out the important points. At that time, Rotas was engaged in shoveling vast quantities of manuscript and autograph material into the moor of the University of Texas. It seemed that they would buy anything if you called it so-and-so papers. We had the Eddie Marsh papers, the Derek Patmore papers, the Paul Scott papers, the Robert Duncan papers, and on and on. But most of all, we had the Princess Bibesco papers. My work generally consisted of going through a few cartons of letters, typescripts, etc., and putting the contents into chronological order. I would then make a brief summary of each category, letters, journals, the author's manuscripts and typescripts, etc., quote any particular spicy or saleable bits, and go on to the next author. But the Bibesco papers were seemingly inexhaustible, and actually they were still flowing freely when I left Rotus in 1964. They're probably still going on. I don't remember if she died or not. Princess Marta Bibesco had lived in Paris in the 20s and 30s and had frequented the circles of the avant-garde in literature, music, and art. She had written to the members of those circles, and they had written to her and she had never thrown away a piece of paper in her life. There were trunks full, cartons full, file boxes full, even hat boxes full of Bibesco papers, all thrust in any old house, letters, diaries, menus, hotel bills, poems, birthday cards, and each new group had to be put in some sort of order. Whenever the princess felt the need of a little extra cash, she would come up from Cornwall, where she resided, telephone Bertram, and negotiations would begin. She always demanded an outrageous sum. He would make a counter-proposal of a somewhat modest nature. She would threaten to take the material elsewhere, and he would advise her by all means to do so. She would reduce her demands to a more moderate price, and eventually they would come to an agreement, subject to my going over the material. Occasionally, she would visit us at the bookshop, together with the green parrot, which accompanied her everywhere. She would invariably leave just at the height of the evening rush hour, which necessitated some unfortunate minion, which role I sometimes filled, being sent out into the 5.30 p.m. maelstrom to obtain a taxi. Said minion had not only to find a taxi, but had to find one willing to take a lady with a parrot. Many drivers balked when they saw the parrot, which was a very raucous bird. 
I believe it spoke only French and Romanian, but that probably made it all the more alarming. At other times, she would want to hand over a particularly choice morsel of the BPs, as we called them, by hand, and I was sometimes dispatched for this purpose. She lived when in London at the Ritz Hotel in Piccadilly, in one of those small back rooms formerly intended for maids or children. I think she had the room on a permanent basis because it was so full of her belongings that there was no way they could possibly have been transported back and forth each time. There were innumerable photographs, mostly of obscure and defunct European nobility. And draped over the backs of chairs and hanging from the curtains by safety pins would be various items of the princess's intimate apparel, corsets, chemises, stockings, etc. She explained to me one day that she put them out thus to air. I assume it was cheaper than having them laundered. She usually greeted me wearing an antiquated rusty black silk wrapper, and we conducted our conversations to screams and interpolations from the parrot. Anyway, all this Pabesco stuff went to Texas, and I sometimes wonder if anyone there ever got around to cataloging it all. Archivists of the Bibesco papers could be a lifetime job if one stretched it out properly, and it was eminently stretchable. I spent two very happy years at Bertrand Reuters, ensconced in one of the tiny upstairs dollhouse rooms on Vigo Street. Bertram's office was usually overrun with books, as is the office of any decent bookseller. And he had in it the most overladen desk that I ever beheld in my life. Whenever he went off on one of his overseas visits, two or three times a year, he would carefully spread a large sheet of brown paper over the top of the desk, covering everything piled upon it. When he returned, he would begin a new accumulation of letters, filing, documents, etc., on top of the brown paper, and this would in turn be covered on the occasion of the next trip. In this way, his desk over the years took on something of the character of an archaeological dig, each level being datable according to the contents revealed within it. A vertical section would have given a fascinating account of his business he could, moreover, produce anything buried there within a few minutes. Oh, yes, he would say, that must have been just before I went to San Antonio last June, and a bit of judicious digging and scrabbling would produce the desired list or quotation or whatever. In 1964, I emigrated, mostly for personal reasons, to California. I had not found modern first editions particularly interesting, but I had found the history of printing interesting. So it was quite lucky that I ended up at Dawson's Bookshop in Los Angeles. Actually, I went there because they were the only people who offered me a job at that time. And I may say I subsequently ended up at H.P. Krauss in New York for the same reason. It does help one to make up one's mind. At Rota's, I had not had much contact with the customers, apart from those of them who came upstairs to visit Bertram. 
At Dawson's, it was quite otherwise, and I worked almost exclusively in the shop, even doing my cataloging there between customers and telephone calls. Dawson's had its own peculiar collection of California freaks. I recall one elderly fellow who rejoiced in the soubriquet of bicycle clips. In those days, travel by anything other than four wheels in the Los Angeles area was hazardous in the extreme, but every week bicycle clips paid us a visit on his antiquated machine. His trouser bottoms neatly and it seemed permanently secured with clips. His real name was Thomas Q. Lempert and on quiet days at the shop there was spasmodic speculation on what the Q stood for. Some people thought Quintilian or Quincy or even Quetzalcoatl. But I held out stoutly for Quasimodo. We never did discover what it was, but I still think Thomas Quasimodo Lempert's has a nice ring to it. Another weekly visitor was a bibliomaniac who came to pack parcels for us every Thursday. The rest of the week he worked at the post office, which he hated, and he usually managed to spend his day's wage at our shop, plus a bit more that he got from the post office. He had been collecting, or rather acquiring, books for about 30 years. I say acquiring because he was quite indiscriminate in his buying, and along with Incunabula and Ashendine Press, he had a great deal of rubbish picked up in junk shops. He was also given to buying six or eight or even ten copies of anything he specially liked, on the principle that you can't have too much of a good thing. <coughs> Besides, he said, they might get into bad hands. Um, there is nothing, really, that fills up the shelves faster than buying on what one might term the decimal system. And Mike's four-bedroom house began to fill with books. When all four bedrooms were full, he moved his bed into the dining room. Living alone, he didn't really need a dining room anyway. When the dining room became full, he moved, in, he moved the bed into the sitting room. When the sitting room became full, he got rid of the bed and put a small cot in the kitchen. I never visited the house, Mike explaining that he was always so busy arranging his books, he never had time to do any housework, but that he would clean it up one day and invite me to see the books. That day never came. But from someone who once visited him when he was ill, I understand that there was a narrow pathway from the front door to the kitchen, the remainder of the hallway on either side being stacked four or five cartons high with books. There was also access to the loo, and there was a space of a few square feet in the kitchen unoccupied by books. When I left California, it was believed that the cot in the kitchen was about to go to make room for books. And the Southern California climate being generally suitable to that kind of thing, residence on the back porch in a sleeping bag was imminent. Another regular customer was a gentleman usually clad in royal blue tights with a matching beret. The space between those two garments being occupied by a scarlet tank top in summer and a white sweater in the winter. I hasten to stress we had lots of normal customers too, but it's 
just that the oddballs remain more vividly in the memory. Working at Dawson's was very different from working at Rotor's. There was, for example, no glass of sherry at 4 p.m. on a dull and rainy afternoon, partaken of at a pretty little Sheraton table in Bertram's office. There was, however, something called Western Americana, for which I conceived and maintained an abiding dislike. A great many of its works were journals of exploration and travel, consisting chiefly of entries like, Wednesday the 4th, proceeded nine miles on foot, saw three Indians and a bear. Thursday the 5th, retraced our steps and saw three bears and an Indian, and so on. People would pay quite ridiculous sums of money for things like that. But there were two interesting sections in the stock at Dawson's, Oriental Art and Printing. At that time, in the second half of the 1960s, the supply of Japanese books, prints, and scrolls was plentiful and comparatively inexpensive. From time to time, we had a Japanese working there, and I learned something about Oriental printing and painting, most of which I have now forgotten but my pleasure in Oriental art has remained. I also began to develop some knowledge of the history of printing, book design, and bibliography, and began to collect in those fields. I would like to stress at this point that the best way to become knowledgeable in a particular field is to collect in it. If this is not possible, illuminated manuscripts and many in Conabula having become somewhat prohibitive in price for the ordinary book budget, the next best thing is to read about other people's collections, either in the private library catalogues of former collectors or in the catalogues of the dealers who sold their books. There is absolutely nothing like catalog reading for increasing one's knowledge. Knowledge of rarity, knowledge of value, knowledge of variance, knowledge of provenance, and the great sale catalogues of the late 19th and early 20th centuries are full of useful information, as are those of well, so many dealers like um, Quaritch, Mags, Goldschmidt, Olschke, one could go on indefinitely. The list is enormous. It occurs to me that some of you, considering the title of my talk, if any of you did, might have wondered if there should have been a query after it. Life in the antiquarian book trade, is there any? It is true that there are days when catalogues seem to consist only of the undesirable or of the unneeded. Into the first category fall things like ratty editions of the Nuremberg Chronicle in late 19th century binding, lacking ten leaves, those remaining trimmed down to the text and with woodcuts colored by hand in Crayola. <laughs> or editions of contemporary poetry on handmade paper, eight lines to a folio page, the whole thing a bargain of $350. Into the second category fall things like the works of A. Edward Newton and Albert Hubbard. God hands in it is a regrettable fact that many catalogues that are likely to 
come your way from today's prophet new dealers will be very unscholarly and frequently full of misinformation. They are also likely to be an affront to the eye and design and materials. It is astonishing how frequently ignorance and bad taste go together. I might add here that illegibility and ugliness are not limited to the uninformed newcomer. Those of you who have seen the latest catalog expressive firm statement of the Groovy will know exactly what I mean. When, after losing a fight with my conscience over the propriety of ordering such a monstrosity, I called up to order a book, I told Sadling of the Groovy what I thought of their catalog. And their answer was, well, Jake wanted something cheap. Cheap is certainly what he got. Uh, along the same lines, I, I would like to put it in here. Um, also of surpassing ugliness was a catalog that arrived in February last from H&S Taylor. Apart from the physical repulsiveness of the catalog, Mrs. Taylorman has a curious habit of cross-indexing items at different prices without making it clear whether they are talking about the same copy. For instance, under Bibliographical Society, they listed Claudin, first Paris Fair, 1898, half leather, gilt, half edges gilt, unobtrusive, naturally, there is no other kind, unobtrusive library stamp on title, price 90 pounds. Further along the catalog, under Claudin, they list the same title, half cloth, half edges gilt but uncut with original wrappers found live at 88 pounds. Now it would seem that the slightly cheaper second copy is the more desirable of the two. But I wonder, did they simply not add that the wrappers were present in the first copy and the library stamp in the second? Sometimes the prices are the same, but the description varies. Anyway, one should exercise caution when ordering from them. However, I did note that there's no catalog number on the front cover, so perhaps they don't intend to be around very long. Having handed out a few brickbats at this point, I will also pass out a few bouquets. There are several new dealers whose catalogs will repay study, in which display both taste and erudition. Jonathan Hill and E.K. Schreiber are both interesting to read and nice to look at. Thinking of their catalogs rather than their persons, so they're, they're both quite interesting too. Um, Dan DeSimon issues excellent bibliography catalogs, though I wish he would splurge a bit more on their production. Though I understand he's split up with his wife now, so he probably won't have any money at all. <laughs> um, of course, these are not the only names worthy of mention, but they are the ones that come most immediately to my mind. I must say it would be nice, I think, if everybody took a little more trouble with their catalogs, even if they must be typewritten, and I'm not sure they must. They can at least be respectably printed by Austria, instead of looking like something from a Neanderthal miniature. Anyway, to return to my life in the antiquarian book trade, 
I stayed for 14 years in bookshops in Los Angeles, and they were very nice people to work for, despite the worst Americana. After all, nobody's perfect. Muir Dawson had his own small Albion press, upon which he could sometimes be nagged into printing invitations or other ephemeral items. And in this way, I learned something about the mechanics of printing, supplemented by visits to the presses of Saul Moss, Clanton Press, and Grant Dahlstrom, the Castle Press, and other local luminaries of West Coast printing. In the shop itself, I finally took charge of most of the buying and also did most of the pricing. People said that there was a vast sigh of relief among Los Angeles dealers when I left because they thought the prices would come down, and they did. Anyway, I came to New York to a new husband and looked for a new job. New York, however, did not throw itself upon my neck with cries of joy and take me to its heart, all right? Everybody was very polite, but everybody said, no, they didn't have a job for me. I had just decided that there was nothing for it but to open my own business, and I had got as far as issuing Kit Curry Books, catalog number one, with an enthusiastic introduction by Terry Bellinger, which was an enormous help. People bought it for the introduction, I think, rather than for the content. Um, anyway, as I was saying, I had got this far when one day God telephoned. Actually, it wasn't God, but one of his archangels in the shape of Mrs. Hanny Krauss. Peter Krauss had told them that I was looking for a job, and they asked, would I come and see them? Actually, I had written Peter months earlier from Los Angeles, but he had said that neither he nor H.P. Krauss could use me. It just shows you that people often don't know their own minds. Anyway, I went and was hired, and have now been for over four years at 16 East 46th Street. It is, in my experience, and probably in most people's, quite unlike any other bookshop. That there is almost never a dull moment is partly due to the, um, what shall I say, extremely volatile temperament of H.P. Krauss, and by extension of this, the fact that one never knows what one will be working on next. One day he is buying Persian miniatures, next day it's Civil War Diaries, and the week after that it's Books of Hours. One has to be ready to swing into action as the house expert on Judaica, which by some gross misunderstanding Mr. Krauss is convinced I am, or one is given some quite illegible and almost totally erased coat of arms to decipher as the house expert on armorial bearings, which by an equally gross misunderstanding Mr. Is also convinced I am. Nevertheless, with the remarkable resources of our justly famous reference library, a great deal can be accomplished. These resources have just been augmented by the addition of the National Union catalog, and great has been the rejoicing on the, on the Second War at its arrival. I might explain here to the 
uninitiated that the ground floor at H.P. Krause's bookshop and Mr. Krause's office had also contained the book. The second floor is where the bibliographers work and contains the reference library, which also occup occupies the second floor of the next door building. The third floor is Mr. Krause's private apartments, the fourth is the bookkeeping, switchboard, etc., plus our files of dealers <coughs> and auction catalogues, while the fifth floor contains our Arabic expert, our computer, which are not one and the same thing, our shipping room and an overflow of heraldic reference books and our complete runs of mags and porridge catalogues. Altogether, the house of H.P. Krauss is quite an operation. I should mention that we also have our own bindery and repair shop, so that now that we have the NUC, we are practically self-supporting. These four years at 16 East 46th Street have been a time of great expansion of knowledge for me. The marvelous reference library enables one to follow any of half a dozen different trails in pinning down an obscure work or provenance, trails that would otherwise entail endless trips to the public library. One grasps the overwhelming importance of bibliography in the study of books and experiences also the sheer joy of confounding an expert when one discovers suddenly that all these years pollard or winged or somebody was wrong and that you yourself have now set the record straight. To those of you hoping and wanting to enter the antiquarian book trade, I will say that I hope you are successful because there is absolutely nothing else on earth like it. You probably won't get rich but you will generally be happy in your work. You will be an, an interesting and amusing person. Your mind will be alert because you will always be exercising it, and you will probably live to be at least 95 since almost everybody in the book trade is noted for their longevity. <laughs>